Hi, I'm Philip Vitale and welcome to The Long Read From Stuff. This week's story is called The Perfect Storm. It's by Stuff senior reporter Ethan Tiora. Ethan has investigated how a storm with the destructive force of Cyclone Gabriel could temporarily cripple Wellington and sink parts of the Hutt Valley under four metres of flood water. Ethan's with us now. Ethan, why did you choose a storm where most people think of the capital's vulnerability? They think earthquakes. Well, that's true. Uh, very true. Uh, there were two reasons why we, we looked at the storm. Firstly, it, it's part of a larger series, sort of looking at the capital's resilience to all manner of natural hazards. And of course, there are a couple of stories in the series looking at earthquakes specifically. The reason why we looked at the cyclone was, well, somewhat obviously, we've had a lot of bad weather in other parts of the country recently. Um, the historic rainfall in Auckland in January and Cyclone Gabriel in February. And um, we wanted to consider what would happen in Wellington. Where are our weak points? How would we fare with a similar level of rainfall? That sort of storm hasn't happened here. How did you go about modelling what could happen? A lot of research. Probably spoke to about 20 people around the region. Um, that's council officers, meteorologists, climate scientists, academics. And sort of piecemeal was able to put together a picture of what might happen. Partly that's based on quite strong evidence. Say in the case of river flooding, there are very detailed maps about where floodwaters would go. In other cases, a storm can be hugely unpredictable. It really matters where the rain falls and how intensely it falls and for how long. And so for that aspect of the story, it was sort of like a pick-your-own-misadventure. And there is a plan, I hope. Reassuringly, yes, there is a plan. The plan is designed to be flexible, but, but in short, we'll begin tracking the storm about six days out. By 48 hours out, we'll have a pretty good indication of where the storm might go and where it might be worst impacted. Well, that's very reassuring. Thanks for that. Now, here's Ethan reading his own story, The Perfect Storm. The storm engulfs the entire Wellington region, like a shroud tossed over the lower North Island. It arrives not long before rush hour on a February afternoon. Ten metre waves break offshore, then crash onto the eastern seaboard and southern coastline. Gravel and driftwood are funnelled into sharp corners of the bays and launched like battering rams at beachfront houses. Wind gusts peak at 200 kilometres an hour, bending trees into pretzel-like knots and snapping others off near the roots. Along the foreshore, the force of the wind claims roofs, in one case carrying the disparate parts of a boat shed almost 70 metres. A plank goes through the window of a house and narrowly misses a child. The storm is hundreds of kilometres across. It rolls ponderously inland at a pace of about eight kilometres an hour and stalls to the northeast of Wellington, driving rain into the Tarador Ranges. By early evening, the capital is sodden. More rain falls in less than an hour than during the whole month of January. 
There are areas of flash flooding in Newtown and Ara Valley. The latter gets 39 millimetres of rain in 22 minutes. The flow of traffic in and out of Newtown competes with an actual torrent. The floodwaters along Adelaide Road rising waist high, seeping into buses and cars. On Arrow Street, the water encroaches into several houses. The hills surrounding the city slip and slide. Sheets of earth fall, damaging several homes and closing 12 roads. The exact number of slips won't be known for months, later revealed to have been 1,143 during this first night alone. In suburban Brooklyn, a house teeters on the edge of a newly formed cliff the family inside barely escaping in time as a landslide tears the foundations beneath them. As water flows down from the hills, the central city's major north to south streets, namely Wakefield Street, Taranaki Street, Kent Terrace and Cambridge Terrace, become a series of fast-moving streams, the floodwaters surging with enough velocity to knock over pedestrians. At the corner of Wakefield and Taranaki Streets, the water ponds half a metre high. As movement around Wellington's interior streets is impeded, the city's exits are strangled. In the afternoon, trains are cancelled after the storm surge overpowers the Petoni seawall, damaging the railway line at several points. The route north to Porirua is blocked when a massive landslide in the Nauronga Gorge scatters 1,000 tonnes of earth along State Highway 1. As night falls, the Kurukuru stream rises and floods over the bridge, inundating the Hutt Expressway and closing State Highway 2. Thousands of people who didn't or couldn't heed warnings not to come into the city are stranded overnight. Considered in the headwinds of the initial response, this is a small success. On a regular day, more than 82,000 people commute into the city. For the past two days, the message has been unequivocal and inescapable. Don't. Ten days earlier, a small low formed to the north of Fiji. Moving westwards into the Coral Sea, the low intensified. Then, under the influence of warm oceans, transformed. Gathering power and speed, the growing storm became a tropical cyclone. The city began monitoring the then cyclone six days out, once it blipped on the edges of the Met Service severe weather alert. Unlike its volatile trigger, the city's response follows a series of predetermined steps. The council is briefed daily by meteorologists and climate scientists who follow the cyclone as it tracks towards New Zealand, plotting a range of possible trajectories the paths most likely or most dangerous. Other councils around the region are similarly briefed. The Wellington Region Emergency Management Office, or REMO for short, is looped into every conversation. Never the central agent of the response, REMO's role is to instead provide reinforcing links at every part of the chain, ensuring different parts of the region's response are connected. The agency is embedded in councils throughout the region, at least two staff in each. At the briefings, also, are the city's controllers. There are at least five designated controllers at each council, sometimes more, typically members of senior management. 
A suitable candidate has good local knowledge, a cool head, technical expertise, and specialised training in emergency response. The controllers act as a conduit between Remo, their colleagues at council, and other agencies. One of them becomes the primary controller, essentially the chief of staff, during a response. That person makes life-or-death decisions, including giving advice that underpins the call to either declare or not declare a state of emergency. As the storm hugs the east coast, the cone of uncertainty narrows. Two days before landfall, there is a teleconference involving the region's nine councils and Remo, as well as representatives from critical infrastructure providers and emergency services. On the call, Met Service meteorologists give a detailed forecast for each territory. It paints a dire picture. Even though the storm has lost power over cooler seas and is no longer considered a tropical cyclone, one of the worst-case scenarios appears almost certain. A massive high-pressure system, bigger than the whole country, has steered the storm down the coast and will soon hook it into Wellington. That same system, parked far off the east coast, will then act as a roadblock, trapping the ex-tropical cyclone for two days, maybe free. It will bring a magnitude of rainfall expected to cause widespread flooding across Wellington, Porirua, the Hutt Valley and Wairarapa. The Hutt River will get enough rain to flood over the top of its stop banks. During the call, it becomes apparent that several councils are likely to declare local states of emergency. Like bulbs, lighting up on a switchboard. Instead, one is declared preemptively, at a regional level. Normally, a city or district's mayor will sign the declaration for a state of emergency. The declaration is signed by the chairperson of the region's joint committee, appointed in the weeks after each local body election, in this case Wellington City's mayor. This happens within the hour. As a first point of order, there is an interagency blast of information about the storm. For days, regular updates about its progress have filtered through to the public, via these same agencies and the media. Strong wind warning, gales could match the strongest ever recorded. Bit of an ominous tone to Newsville this morning with the X trop Council warns public to take extreme care. MO is hunkering down at home. She's going to top the banks of Hutt Campbell's chunky soup. This steady flow of information now becomes a flurry. Text alerts, radio bulletins, posts on social media. You're a disaster survival like kit. we've ever seen. No, but that is right. On the other hand, the word from the council has been super widespread. Any Zealand asks all passengers. Ex-tropical cyclone got you anxious? Here's what to do. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. But that, I think Chris, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Actually, Nothing a fan there, that sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Prepare for an unfiltered journey through the harsh realities of infertility. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. 
In The Human Race with Dan and Nadine Higgins, we share raw and unvarnished stories of couples who have faced the brutal truth of infertility. Unless you've been in it, it's, it's really tough and really lonely. Yeah, and also, this is really weird, but baby showers, you don't need to open the presents in front of everyone. Confronting the harsh reality that not every story has a happy ending. This very blunt, abrasive doctor who I had, you know, had not seen before, who delivered the news, just like, you'll probably never have a natural period again and you'll probably never have a baby. The Human Race, where we share the untold stories of couples in the race of their lives to create a life. I feel like I nearly missed out and I got to do it. And so I feel really lucky. So it's been incredibly positive. Listen today at stuff.co.nz slash thehumanrace or wherever you get your podcasts. The Human Race is proudly brought to you by Elevate. And now, back to The Long Read. An unassuming villa on a heritage street in Fawndon acts as the headquarters for Wellington City's emergency response. Remo would normally occupy the Turnbull Street building solely. Now the office is commandeered as the city's emergency operations centre. Directed by one of the city's controllers, the centre is staffed by council and Remo employees, who work on a rotating roster. Just across the road, the region's emergency coordination centre is activated. It fulfils essentially the same function, except at a regional level, staffed by Greater Wellington Regional Council and Remo employees. Each district activates its own emergency operations centre, based in seismically strengthened buildings, selected for their position away from hazard zones. The state of emergency unlocks powers needed for the response, such as enabling large-scale coordinated evacuations. On the morning of the storm, wave buoys floating in Cook Strait pinpoint a likely barrage of waves, right down to the individual street and property level. The council acts and coordinates evacuations around the bays, including as many as 50 houses at Ofero Bay. Wellington's south coast becomes a ghost town. The few souls who remain soon marooned there. The city's streets are eerily quiet. Water crews check known weak points, clearing stormwater grates, inlets and outlets. Others check the stop banks and floodgates of the region's major rivers. In the hours before landfall, the gravity of the situation is conveyed most urgently through red alert warnings for both wind and rain issued by Met Service. There is likely to be widespread significant damage, a bulletin partially reads, impossible danger to life. By evening, these warnings come to terrifying fruition. Out-of-town commuters, the thousands of people stranded in the capital, must make last-minute arrangements for the night. Some stay with city-based friends. Others huddle in evacuation centres, known formally as emergency assistance centres, established throughout the city. Sky Stadium, also known as the Caketon, becomes the largest such centre taking in hundreds of temporary refugees from inner-city suburbs. The city is built to a whole series of patterns. The height of the tide in the harbour, for instance, or the flow of traffic in and out. In a disaster scenario, these patterns change shape quickly, often faster than people can adapt. 
With enough trauma, the patterns that existed before the city was engineered can take hold anew. Soon, the storm imposes its own kind of order, a kind of chaos. Night falls and the capital is plunged into deeper darkness when large sections of the electrical grid fail and mobile phone coverage drops out intermittently. Frontline responders, by this time already stretched, must perform an already arduous task in total blackness. On the flats of Tawa, there are spots of surface flooding. Wellington's northernmost suburb has anticipated those trouble spots and remains mostly in situ, except for a few households. Then, the conditions underpinning those assumptions change. Stebbings Dam is impeded by debris and the stream bursts, sending excess water rushing downstream. Tawa residents on the flat scramble to higher ground. By 10pm, the suburb is effectively divided in two on the eastern and western hills. Throughout the night, the volunteer fire brigade makes rescues on the flat. To their credit, there are no casualties. The community mucks in, assuming key roles at its community hubs, which are clearly articulated on cards worn at the end of lanyards. Over the next 48 hours especially, and in the days afterwards, the community will rely on each other. The Takapo Bridge in the south is washed away, and access from the north over the flooded stream is also lost. As night deepens, the storm poses new problems, duration rather than intensity. A panicked Miramar man gets through to frontline responders in the hours after midnight. He tells them the backyard outside his window looks like a lake. In the minutes before the call drops out, the water rises almost to his waist. The words act as unintended prophecy. The streets and shops and parks surrounding the man's house, on the low-lying part of the peninsula, were once a lagoon. That is, until its water was drained in the 1840s, one of the more arrogant early colonial engineering projects. And overnight, the storm turns back time. It heaps 400 millimetres of rain onto Miramar in 12 hours. The streams that once fed the lake return to the surface, and the lake reforms. The man is later rescued from his roof, one of several close calls in the suburb that night. As day dawns, a wider picture of devastation emerges. Thousands of people in Porirua have endured a sleepless night, bundled between two evacuation centres. Many households in the northern suburb of Plymouthton are first evacuated to Te Paraha Arena in the city that afternoon. Capricious in its moods, the storm dumps rain in the low-lying city centre as well. The deluge causes water to pond throughout its streets and in the nearby central suburb of Alston to the west. The evacuees are redispersed to schools and churches in the hills, set up as de facto evacuation centres. In low-lying parts of Cannons Creek, there are pockets of people who are caught out by the flood. Those dips in the landscape occur loosely within lower socio-economic areas, and while people seek refuge in churches on higher ground, 
these existing inequities will be compounded in the weeks and months to follow. Tatahi Bay at the foot of the peninsula is cut off from the rest of the city. The main entry or exit at Tatahi Bay Road submerged underwater. Takapuwahia, the suburb's local marae, is also flooded. With no major supermarket, the suburb's two local foursquares struggle to meet demand. Many people must rely on their own stores of food until water levels recede and road access into the city is restored. In the night, several people attempt to leave using a back road across the coast and must be rescued. On Porirua's northern boundary, slips close State Highway 59, cutting off Pukarua Bay northways. To the north, the Kapiti coast survives the night better than most. The Tararuas act as a buffer from the worst of the wind and rain. Even so, the spillover is violent enough to put Wakanai River nearly in flood. Winway bridges through the hills are flooded or washed away, further restricting access to the district from Wellington. On the far edges of the Wairarapa coast, a thin spine of low-lying coastal roads is broken into fragments. The rough sea inundates or washes away parts of the road. Sparse coastal communities such as Maitakona, Whakataki and Castle Point are isolated from each other, then inland from Masterton after the Whakataki River floods onto Masterton Castle Point Road. These hardy communities are largely prepared with their own reserves of food, generators and water, while some people choose to self-evacuate, but the conditions test even those who remain. Further along the road into Masterton, rural Tinui is widely flooded, paddocks swamped under silt, livestock drowned. The Waipu River, flowing through Masterton, floods into the city. In Greytown, the Waiohini overflows and leaves significant areas in peril to floodwaters. At Petoni, the harbour is lashed to fury, the water deeply discoloured by floodwaters from the Hutt River and the minor streams. Overnight, the biggest modern disaster to befall the Hutt Valley occurs. Just before midnight, the Hutt River overtops stop banks, unleashing a furious torrent into Lower Hutt. Fortunately, catastrophe comes with a six-hour warning. The city accurately predicts when the river will flood, using a delicate system of telemetry, instruments that gauge river flow and rainfall. Even when the system goes offline after torrential rain, the Regional Council's team of river experts are able to provide timely information, combining earlier estimates and existing river-level knowledge. In six hours, the city must move some 20,000 people out of the direct path of the flood. The river's stop banks hold, as they should, preventing a worse catastrophe. It is a small mercy compared to what happens next. The floodwaters move through the streets, compelled with enough force to shove aside cars. Down through White Lines East, the water flows, filling up behind the railway lines at Woburn. The train tracks act as a barrier in the floodplain, only momentarily. The water ponds over rooftop height, before crashing over the railway line, down into Waifetu and Seaview, then further out to the coast. 5,000 homes are in the path of floodwaters, 
as well as 500 non-residential buildings, hospitals, schools and businesses. In Waifetu, the floodwaters pond four metres high at their deepest. With the water released to the east, the pressure on the west is less. There is flooding through car parks and streets that immediately border the river, intended to let it breathe. From above, there is more water. Alistown and Petoni each deal with 200 millimetres of rain in a 24-hour period, causing widespread surface flooding. The stormwater system is quickly overwhelmed, and wastewater pools on the streets. Even with the will and legislative powers given by a state of emergency, not everyone gets out in time. The flood cannot yet be tallied and lives lost, and it takes weeks to account fully for the damage to infrastructure and property. Across Cook Strait, the storm causes more damage in Nelson, Motueka, Havelock and Picton. Recognising wide-scale devastation across multiple regions, a national state of emergency is declared later that morning for just the sixth time ever. Frontline responders are surged into affected areas to help with the response. The government soon accepts offers of assistance from Fiji and Australia. Over the next 24 hours, the storm continues to generate heavy rain, before easing along with the high-pressure system holding it in place and moving off the country on a track north of the Chathams. Four months of rain falls in less than two days. The efforts of the community play a key role in the response. More than two dozen community hubs are opened around the region. These hubs continue to operate over the course of the next week, with members of the community checking whether neighbours have food and water, adequate shelter, or need medical assistance. Some access is restored to the capital within two days. The Hutt Expressway at the Korukuru Stream is cleared and State Highway 2 reopened. The rail corridor, however, takes months to repair. The storm has an even longer tail. In the months and years afterwards, movement around the city is curtailed. The infrastructure either closed or not as reliable as before. Production suffers, the economy sputters, and choking points of housing and affordability are exacerbated. The people struggling before fear worse afterwards. For them, in a sense, the storm never lifts. That was The Perfect Storm on the Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Ethan Tiora and produced by John O'Williams. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. This content was made possible by the subscribers of The Post. You can find this story and more like it online at thepost.co.nz. If you listen via our website, you can hear this story and others on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anō. If you liked listening to this pod, 
Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz support.